Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. Tonight, my guest is Nancy, and I'm very excited because I just keep coming across new women to have on the Story Night podcast. And in this particular case, I was on a walk with a precious friend of mine, Anna, and as she's sharing a little bit about her life, it wound us up into talking about her mother's life. And just within about three minutes, I love listening. I stopped dead in my tracks and looked at her, and I think she could read my mind because she said, you think she should be a story night speaker, don't you? I said, yes, I do. And very graciously, uh, Anna reached out to her mom and she agreed and we got to connect. So I am I'm so grateful to you, Nancy. Thank you for being here and, and joining on this Zoom call. It's nice to, to meet you over the screen and I really appreciate you taking time to share your story. So as we do on these episodes, I'd love to ask you to start with just a brief introduction of sort of who you are in your life today. All right. Well, I'm Nancy Reichenberger, and I'm living in Yakima, Washington with my husband, Greg. We've lived here for about three and a half years now. And what brought us up to Yakima from McMinnville was my husband's job transfer. He works with foster kids, the foster care licensor. And so this was quite an adjustment for me moving up here because I was been a stay-at-home mom for 30 years and home was still had a few children as it as we were packing up, getting ready to leave. So we got all the kids situated and we moved on up here and I've been adjusting to an empty nest. It's kind of where I'm at right now. And I've had a, a few jobs, temporary jobs working in the school district and the kitchen and but then with everything shutting down with COVID, I'm kind of back at home and looking for volunteer opportunities right now. Well, speaking of volunteering, thank you so much for volunteering to open up your story and share on this particular podcast. And before we dive into your story, I just wanted to let listeners know that a part of the story will be very emotional. You might want to have a tissue box close by, but keep in mind that we have a God who brings great hope even during seasons of grief. So Nancy... I'd love to invite you to take us back to your childhood and tell us about your life. Well, I'll start with um, my growing up days. I was born to Alan Mary Vossler, the second of five children. And I'm so thankful. My parents were strong Christian parents. They loved us. They were committed to each other. And I'm so grateful for that. They spent time with us kids camping every summer. We go out hiking on Sunday afternoons. They would... They taught me to obey, to work hard, the work ethic. They introduced me to Christ with the most spectacular thing that they did. They introduced me to Christ at an early age. And probably about the age of five, I came to recognize that I was a sinner in need of Christ's forgiveness. And I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I had a burden for people at that time. I really had a desire to see people come to know the Lord, even at a young age. As I moved down the path of my life into my junior high and high school years, that was a really difficult time for me. I struggled with anorexia in junior high, then bulimia in high school. And the, so it, it was definitely a challenging time, but it was, I had special memories too, special memories of cross country. I ran cross country and formed a special bond with the other runners on the team. 
And that was a time where my faith was solidified. I, I struggled with whether my faith was my faith or if it was because I believe because my parents believe or if I believe because I believe and came to the recognition that I believe because I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died for my sins. Well, I went to Judson Baptist College halfway through. I, I was in the middle of the year incoming freshman and, and my husband was a fifth year senior. He stuck around for me. And I, we met at Judson Baptist, which is no longer there in the Dell. It's gone bankrupt since that time. It was a special time. We, he was very creative with our dates. I remember one time where we got in our, in his pickup truck and we drove down I-84 and I look and there's a raft on the side of I-84 and, and then another couple from our college pulls up behind us and we get in the raft and they paddle us out to this island in the Columbia River. But then as we have our, they bring out a guitar and we have Martinelli's and crackers and, and then we look and we see someone's shoe floating down the river. And what had happened was they opened up the floodgate so our, our island was sinking. So we had to climb back in the raft. And as we did that, our, the raft kind of caved in on us, but we were able to get back to the shore. So, so we had all kinds of creating beating up there in the Dell. But anyway, he asked me to marry him five months after we met and we got engaged at that time. And then married a year later in June 22nd, 1985. So we were married about 35 and a half years now. Our newly, um, when we were newly married, we moved up to Ellensburg, Washington. So my husband could attend Central Washington University. And there is where our first son was born, our son Caleb. It was a, it was a exciting time. It was a wonderful time. One of our songs, our theme songs became Danny's song by Kenny Logan. And especially the words, even though we ain't got money, I'm so in love with you, honey. So anyway, I found out I was expecting Caleb about about two weeks before our first anniversary. He was born there in Ellensburg, Washington. I adjusted to this big change going from the two of us to having a baby. And and that was exciting, but it's also a lot of work. <laughs> Babies are lots of work. From there, we ended up moving down to Vancouver, Washington, and shortly after that time, I found out I was expecting our second child, Nathan. And from we lived there just in Vancouver for a brief time, and then my husband got a, a job down in, in Newburgh, Oregon, so we moved to Kinsville, where he worked at he worked in Newburgh at ADEC. And just shortly after we were there, our son Nathan was born in McNinville. Well, anyway, life was good. We had our two redheaded little boys and enjoyed our our time with them and. We didn't know. We thought maybe possibly our family was done at that point. And Caleb enjoyed his little brother and called him Nene. Then life got hard. It was in the middle of the night in April. Uh, Nathan woke up with a high, high fever. It was probably about 104. And I went in there and gave him some Tylenol and gave him a cool bath and was able to bring his fever down and make him more comfortable. And so in the morning when we woke up, my husband and took Caleb to church, and, and I was home with Nathan, and he seemed to be improving. He and fever had broken, and he seemed to be doing much better than he had in the night. That afternoon, we decided, because he had seemed to be doing better, and the sun was out, and it was a beautiful spring day, we took, we went out to Brentville Park and brought a blanket that he could just rest on. And Caleb, Greg brought Caleb out so he could play with him and just watched Nathan while he rested there. Well, we were there probably maybe just an hour or two out there, and then we came back home. And when I 
brought him home, I changed, was changing his diaper. And as I was changing his diaper, I could see that in his groin area that it was dark purple and that the roof of his mouth was extremely dark purple. And then I knew something was terribly, terribly wrong. That was just not normal. So I called my parents, who lived just about a mile from us, to come watch Caleb while we took Nathan to the emergency room. Probably about a mile and a half, it really wasn't very far at all. But on the way in, he started having going into respiratory distress. He was having difficulty breathing. And as we walked through the emergency room doors, he continued to be in distress. And when they talked saw once of us, the nurse just grabbed Nathan out of my arms and rushed him back into a room and here out over the intercom you could hear stat, 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 and all the medical staff rushing in. And during that time, and Greg was they're having Greg fill out paperwork and I'm just standing there by myself. But God brought people along the way to minister to us. And at that point in time, a lady was in the emergency room with her daughter and she just came up and held me while seeing what was going on. She just comforted me and encouraged me and just held me during that devastating time. So the medical staff continued to work on Nathan and would give us, come back and forth to the room we were in, giving us updates on his condition. And they told us that he was extremely, extremely sick. And during that time, well, we had some friends that came to, came down and came into the room with us. And we had told them, they must have known that we were down there. We told them earlier not to come down, but we're so glad that they ignored us and came on down to the emergency room anyway. I remember our friend praying, and he was praying that God would perform a miracle because we could see that Nathan was not doing well at all. And I remember, I believe it was the Holy Spirit that impressed on my heart at that point in time that that it would be wonderful if, if God healed, if, if Nathan was healed, but that the greater miracle would be that if he would take Nathan and that I'd be able to go on and function in life. Because healing would be the easy thing. Having to be able to go on after losing a child, I just couldn't imagine. And so, um, so I believe that was the Holy Spirit was kind of preparing me for Nathan's death. I don't know if I've ever heard it explained so uh, eloquently, the two different kinds of miracles. Because we only think of the healing miracle, the from our perspective, from our human earthly perspective, the miracle that brings good news and what we want at that exact moment, mm-hmm. what our timeline, our wish. And we really don't think of the the miracle in the sense of through God's eyes, that he has, he has other ways of doing miracles. He can certainly do the healing miracle. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. I know you've seen it. Many listeners have probably at some point in their life either experienced it or know of somebody who's experienced a complete medical shock, that healing, that there's no way that mountain could have moved and it moved. Those kinds of miracles. But there's also, like you're saying, the miracle of what God does within us, in our hearts, mind, soul. And a lot of times that happens over a long period of time. And I I just had to pause and appreciate what you said. And I hope that that touched women listening to, especially for those who are preparing possibly for grief or who are in the middle of grief right now, that even if your prayer wasn't answered exactly the way you wanted it to be, doesn't mean that God's not working a miracle. 
Yeah, that's that's definitely true. We we saw God perform one miracle after another, but not in the way we would have wanted or expected. So as Nathan continued to struggle in the emergency room, his heart stopped at one point, and they came in and told us that his heart had stopped, and we were able to revive him. Going, so they were going to send life flight in from Storm Decker in Portland, OHSU. So life flight flew down, and they there's no room on this plane for us for them to do their work and for us to uh, participate. So we, my dad drove us up to drove my husband and I up to Storm Decker. And when we are when we got there, we were in the room just waiting to figure out how to get connected with our son. There was a, some people there that were had been there. Who, someone in their congregation, a, a young woman, or had been in a car wreck, and they were up there with their own loss, and their own you know trauma going on. But they saw us, and they came up and said, "You guys look like you're hurting. Can we pray with you?" And they came up to us, and we just had a prayer session right there. And we just, I thank God because they're another another person that God brought into our lives right at that moment and everything was happening so fast and so devastating. So anyway, Nathan, um, they flew him up and another couple that came was our pastor who was over in Vancouver, Washington. His son and his fiance were having a bridal shower over there and they came over and to be with us for a little bit right? Um, Nathan wasn't doing well. And They'd give reports back and forth. His organs started shutting down. He was hemorrhaging. He was totally hemorrhaging. And they asked us, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want us to keep working on him? Should we stop? Well, they allowed us to go in and, and take a look at him. And when I, when we saw him, we knew that they just needed to let him go. His body, like I said, was totally hemorrhaging. So there wasn't any white part on his body. It was just dark, dark purple and totally swollen. And it's just like we just wanted him to be free, free of that suffering and free to go on to be a speaker. So we told them to go ahead and stop. And he was going to die anyway. There wasn't any, they weren't like, I'm not going to be able to save him. So they stopped working and just the, I guess the shock and the grief of seeing our baby go. And everything happened so quick. It happened, I mean, it was all within 24 hours that he was been fine, and then within a day, he was gone. And I remember they came in and asked us, um, just shortly after all, after all these hours of trauma, if we wanted an autopsy then. And we we said no. We just kind of basically wanted them to leave our child alone. I mean, we didn't want an autopsy then. He was already gone. We didn't see a point in what, what would be good of an autopsy do at this point in time. But anyway, we didn't do a, an autopsy. It came back to haunt us later. I just can't even fathom that that grief. And I know that there are going to be listeners who have lived through that moment. Mm-hmm. And, and for all of the listeners who haven't, but know somebody who is, you feel very helpless. Like, what can you possibly say? What can you possibly do to make somebody feel any sense of comfort? But I love, love that God provided that other family there to stop and pray with you, even in the midst of their grief. Mm-hmm. And that is such a picture of the relationships we're really called to be in, mm-hmm. to 
it makes me think of the verse, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who are in mourning. And most of us do a really good job of rejoicing with those who are celebrating. For the most part, that tends to be an easier thing to do. Great, let's join this celebration. We'll have, we'll be a part of this party. We'll we'll do all of that. But I know for many people, it can be very uncomfortable or or very difficult and challenging to mourn with those who are mourning and just sit with them when they're grieving and and not try to fix everything, but just be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, as we came home, we were just in shock and we were numb and it just didn't seem real. And it felt like our, our heart had been listened to. It's so I didn't realize how exhausting and I knew emotionally how exhausting grief was. I didn't, I didn't realize how exhausting physically grief was. And I remember even the morning of the uh, memorial service day that even just my heart literally I thought something was wrong with my heart. I just, I did not feel, I had pain in my heart, literally, physically, I had pain in my heart. And, and yet there's a lot of distractions at that time, with people coming in, family coming in from the memorial service, everybody coming surrounding you, and so we are distracted. There's a lot of distractions going on, even in the midst of our pain, there's a lot of distractions. But there's, there's constant reminders, too, of the loss. I mean, I was breastfeeding Nathan, so my breast would swell up with milk and I'd ache and hurt and have to go dump my milk down the sink. And that was just devastating. Now it should be going to nourish my baby and I had to dump it down the sink. Caleb was really close to his brother and there, he'd have a rocking horse and, and he'd jump on that rocking horse. And with Nathan, I'd always be afraid that he'd get his fingers under the rocking horse and Caleb was jumping up and down. And then... When Nathan was gone, there's times Caleb would be riding on his rocking horse, and just all of a sudden, like, okay, I gotta go run in there and check on that. Well, then the next thought is he's gone. So there's just always constantly your mind's trying to adjust to him here, him gone, you know, just back and forth. My mind is really struggling with that. And I think guilt, whether it's your fault or not, with the loss of a child, I experience guilt. I think as a parent, we feel like it's our responsibility to protect our child. And when we can't, even whether it's justified or not, it's easy to feel guilty that I didn't, I wasn't there to protect my child. I couldn't protect my child from death. And I think, and, there, and um, grief puts a strain on a marriage. Men and women grieve differently. And our mortician did, did warn us about that, just saying that, I think at that time he mentioned that about 85% of people that lose a child end up divorced within the first year or so. And so he kind of warned us that it is a stressful time, and it is a stressful time on a marriage. My husband reacted totally different. He was grieving, but he, he expresses grief a lot different than I expressed my grief. And I think during a time like that, I'm so thankful that the body of Christ came and surrounded us. They would invite us. Some people would invite over, they'd send cards. Because when you're, when you have two people that are hurting so bad, they really can't be helping each other. They're both devastating. When you're that devastated, you really need outside support that can come in and surround you both. And we're so thankful that we did have a wonderful church family that supported us, prayed for us. And we got letters from not only our church, but people that had met us at the hospital wrote us a letter. 
my husband's family's church that lived back in the Midwest, they would send encouraging cards. So we were, we were very, very blessed in, in the amount of support that we got. Well, I became pregnant with our, our daughter just two weeks after Nathan passed away. So it was, it was interesting because it was a, a huge blessing on one hand. It was exciting to have that life growing inside of me. But on the other hand, it was a wrestling with, I don't want, I don't want another baby. I want Nathan back. You know, it just, and yet also at the same time thankful that there was life in the midst of all the death. There was life being created inside me. So five months after Caleb passed away, I was about four and a half months pregnant at that time. Caleb got sick. He was, had been, well, he had the colds off and on, but this was the first time he'd really actually been sick since Nathan had died. And my mom knew that was probably going to be kind of tough on me since this was the first time he was sick. So she came over, which was a huge blessing. She came over and joined me the morning that he woke up sick. And I was able to get Caleb into a pediatrician that morning because he was starting to get tremor, kind of shake a little bit. And I was really concerned. So the pediatrician said, come, you know, come on down. We'll, we'll get him in right away. And he knew I needed reassurance. He listened to his lungs and said, you know, I, I can hear a little bit of pneumonia in his lungs. But he, he should be fine. Don't worry about him. We'll send you down to the hospital to get some x-rays. And, but, you know, he should, he should be fine. From, we drove from the doctor's office to the hospital, which in Minville, everything's very close. So at that time was where the old Walgreens is. And it was just maybe about five, six blocks away. So Caleb was sitting on my lap as we're checking in. We're filling out paperwork. I was filling out paperwork at that time. And I looked and Caleb starts struggling breathing. He's having trouble breathing. And a nurse sees that and grabs him out of my arm. And because when she, when she would hold him, he would fight for breath. When I held him, he relaxed and stopped breathing. So she grabbed a hold of him and took him to get some help. They contacted our doctors in that they, who had just released us saying, Hey, Caleb, something's wrong with him. Something seriously wrong with him. We know that you would never have sent them on their own from your office to the hospital if he would have been in the same, this condition. So they did a test x-ray and they discovered that he did have a slight pneumonia in his lungs and that his white blood cell count was extremely, extremely low, which fighting an infection should have been really, really high. But um, something was, so they could tell something was not, not right. So anyway, they're giving him treat, they're treating him as best they could. They did a spinal tap to check his spine, and I'm not actually sure what the results from the spinal tap was. I don't believe there's anything in his spine. So anyway, we were in an emergency room, and Caleb would ask for his Bible book. He loved reading out of his Bible book, so we'd read stories to him and share with him, and then but he continued to go downhill. He continued. Things weren't, weren't looking very good for Caleb, and they told us that they were going to have to fly him to Dornbecker. So they, they asked one of us parents to go up to Dornbecker to meet the helicopter coming back in. So they sent a helicopter down from Dornbecker. And my dad just decided to take me. I, I took a ride to my dad and we drove up to Portland as quick as we could. I remember going through all the red lights, flashing our lights, driving up to Portland as fast as we could to meet the helicopter coming in. When my dad and I got to Portland, we got, we got a call saying that that Caleb was not going to make it, that he was, he, they weren't going to be able to fly him. He was not stable enough to fly him. And last I had seen him, he was talking and, and reading or reading books to him. But now he was, they were having to 
manually keep them alive. They asked if I wanted them to keep them alive. I tried, I asked them to keep them alive until I got back to McMinnville if they could. My dad, when we found out that we needed to turn around, we got to Portland, we just, we just made it to Portland, turn around and come back. We got in the car and came back as quick as we could back to McMinnville Hospital and run into the hospital to figure out what's going on. I found out that Caleb did not, he was, wasn't alive when I got back. He had already died. So I, I go in and join my husband and we just hold each other grieving over our first two boys. So they, they had Caleb's body in a separate room and they asked us to come in and they come in and see his body. We went in and, and viewed his body and just, you know, when you see someone after they've passed, you just know that that's not them, that this is just a tent and this is just, this is not, not them. And we're so thankful that, so thankful. There's a verse that comes to my mind. It's actually a verse that we have on Nathan's tombstone. And it says, it's this tent, which is our house is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. And that's exactly what it feels like. It's a tent. As we came out of those double doors, I do remember my husband saying, the Lord gives, the Lord takes, blessed be the name of the Lord, quoting Job. And I'm just so thankful to have a husband that loved the Lord, loves the Lord, and that was just mindful of God's working during that time. That that moment, and I know when you shared that with me the first time, I just sort of had chills go up and down, to just imagine walking out of those doors after losing not one, but two precious children, and for your husband to even think of that verse, let alone be able to speak it, is very amazing. It's so profound because I just think of how many of us would not be in the mindset of quoting a Bible verse. There would be maybe a lot of other words or thoughts in our minds, but to have such a relationship with God, such a trust of him that you can say something like, blessed be the name of the Lord, or praise be to God, anything of that nature, right in the midst of probably the, mo- the, the hardest grief many of us can imagine, mm-hmm. is in- astounding. It's, it's incredible. I think the Holy Spirit's presence is just so, so there. And you can like, like earlier when, when the Holy Spirit impressed on my heart that the greater miracle would be if you go on with life, I think that's the same thing with some situation where I think it's just the Holy Spirit impressing on your heart at that moment that the Lord be blessed. Well, an autopsy, they did do an autopsy on Caleb and they discovered that he was born without a spleen. So he got a blood infection, took him within a day. Um, and the spleen is the main lymph system gland. And so he had new, so Caleb died from a pneumococcal blood infection where Nathan had died from pneumococcal blood infection. Our heart once again felt like it was written too. And it was hard to process both of their deaths at the same time. And we had gone through, I signed up for a grief class prior after Nathan had passed away and not expecting that Caleb had also passed away. I remember at that grief class, there was a couple or actually a lady whose husband and child had been killed in a car wreck on the way to church. And she just explained how for her she was only able to grieve one person at a time. She wasn't able to grieve both at a time. And I think that just gave me freedom 
because after after Caleb passed away, then my grief switched from Nathan, even though I was still grieving Nathan, the emphasis became more on Caleb. And even though I think it's God's way of protecting us from being overwhelmed with grief. And anyway, it kind of freed me up to relieve some of that guilt. But grief is an interesting thing. It's, I remember coming back after the repast and just going through town and it's like, wow, I mean, everything's going on as if nothing happened. You know, every cars are going back and forth. You hear people hustle and bustle around. It's like, you know, it's like, wait, my life just stopped. How can everybody just be acting as if nothing happened? And just, it didn't seem, it seemed so abnormal then. It seemed so awful. <laughs> and wrestling with grief, grief actually is a lot different than I expected in some ways because I, in high school, I remember studying about grief and they, you know, going through all the different stages of grief. And so when we hit a certain stage, I felt like, okay, you deal with that and you go to the next stage and this stage and that stage. Well, for me, it was very different than that. It was, you feel like it's a tidal wave. You've got a, a huge wave. You've got, you're dealing with a shock and numbness. And then the, the loss, the tremendous loss and anger and, you know, eventually acceptance. But you thought, okay, it's like a tidal wave. So first it's a huge wave and then it, the wave becomes a little bit less and less, but it's like, you still deal with some of those emotions again, but maybe not quite in such an extremeness as the first time. So I, I guess that surprised me. I thought you deal with one thing and move on, but it's, it's like, oh, I already dealt with that, but then it comes back and you're dealing with it again, but in not quite such a huge way. Because I know, you know, that scripture became alive. I mean, I've been raised in a Christian home, but scripture would just bounce off the pages to me and it just became extremely alive. But then on the other hand, there was, times in my grief process when I got angry with God. You know, God, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. Most people don't have to lose one and I have to lose two. You know, it's not fair. But I remember some of my mom's life lessons, you know, she would always tell us kids, you know, life isn't fair. You know, and, and that would come back to me even during this time. It's like, oh, I guess your life isn't fair. And, and this, you know, and, and with God, there are times when I really question, you know, is it that God doesn't care or is he powerless to do something about it? You know, what, you know, just really questioning things again, you know, questioning my faith, questioning God. And then coming out of that time of questioning with a, a deeper sense of, you know, God does love me, he does care. But it just, death like that grief just shakes you to your roots. It shakes you down to, to your core. And I know, you know, when, when wave upon wave of, of different tragedies were coming into our life, God brought a verse to my mind. Um, and it's actually God talking to Israel, but it really encouraged me that, that I wasn't going to be overwhelmed by my grief, but he was going to take me through it. And it's out of Isaiah 43. And it says that now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And for me, I just kind of held on to that verse, even though that was specifically to Israel. God used that in my life to be assured that he wasn't going to allow life circumstances to overwhelm me, that he was going to be right there with me. And that I just clung to that verse for many, many days. So often we have loved ones who are grieving and we want to be helpful and we 
want to do the right things and we want to say the right things, but we don't know how. We don't know what those are. Often we say things like, let me know if you need anything, or I'm here if you need me. But as somebody who has experienced, has really experienced grief, do you have any specific memories of the things that people did or said for you that were particularly meaningful or comforting, helpful, anything like that, that might, that maybe those of us who are listening going, how, how can we support somebody who's grieving? What, what would you say to them? I think there's different things. One, one thing is, remember a lady came up to me and just told, said, you know, this is awful. This is horrible. And it just, to me, it was just an acknowledgement of, yeah, this, this is awful. It's okay to say it's awful. You know, we know that God's going to bring good out of it, but right then I just needed to know that somebody was acknowledging that the situation was awful. It was a tragedy. And I think, um, and I think timing's important. I, I know people sometimes would say, well, you've got your memories. You know, and, and if you say that too soon, that's not something you want to hear because you don't want your memories. You want, you want your child. So just, you know, sure, that might be something down the road. So I think sometimes it's just the timing of when things are done. When, when things are raw and fresh, you want to be there grieving with them and, and that they'll come around eventually. But, but right now, they need to be able to have time to grieve. And I think not to be afraid, not don't be afraid of saying the wrong thing. I think people realize it's hard. I know Greg and I realized it was hard for people. And we knew that they were going out of their way and, and to say the wrong thing. I wouldn't be overly worried about saying the wrong thing. I think it's better to come up and say the wrong thing than to not be there at all. But some things that are helpful, I think, is when a person, instead of saying, what can, or can, you know, call me if you need me or call me if you need me to do something for you. Recognize that that person is under a huge weight. They're not going to be able to do that. Not, not initially anyway. And maybe not at all. I don't know. But they maybe offer a suggestion, you know, would you like me to do this for you? And if that's not something that you need help with, you can say, well, thank you, but maybe this would be helpful. But yeah, I so I love and I appreciate those really practical ideas. And I think to your point, there's a lot to be said about timing. And it's not a one size fits all. I mean, very much like we talked about grief doesn't follow this exact perfect linear pattern. Well, in many ways, neither does the support of those who are grieving. Everybody's a little different. And what might be helpful and supportive to one might be a little different to somebody else. What might be really helpful and supportive the day after a trauma might be different than a year after the trauma. And and just having that grace with each other, knowing that, and I love what you said, don't worry so much about getting it just right. Just show, just, just show up, you know, try, show that you're there. And sometimes it's super simple. Would you like me to come to your laundry for you? Can I pick up your groceries for you? Can I mean, I feel like sometimes just the smallest thing can be really helpful. Um, and it just shows that you're willing and that you're there. So I hope that some of those uh, just ideas can be really helpful for anyone looking for practical ways to be supportive. Don't be afraid of people's emotions, um, the grief, the grieving one's emotions. Sometimes it's okay to just ask them, you know, what happened? You know, and, and they want to have an opportunity sometimes to express what happened. They're living with all these foreign memories and just be able to express that, to be able to cry over it. But that doesn't make them hurt worse. They're already hurting. It's just allowing them to express the hurt that they're already experiencing. Absolutely. I know one thing a friend of mine said to me once was, 
how she wished people would feel comfortable and and actually invite her to talk about the son that she lost. Mm-hmm. And and again, that's not to say that that's exactly what every single person wants to do at every single day during their season of grief, but it was just so touching to know that yeah, when when you've lost somebody, sometimes you want to talk about them. You want to remember them. You want to share about them. You want somebody to listen to how wonderful they were or how how precious they were, just to keep kind of really keep those memories alive and really honor them in that way. That can that can be a really special thing. I think the key is, you know, sometimes it's just to ask, would you like to talk about this? Would you would you like to share? Would you like to go on a walk? Would you like help with something? Just just giving that real gentle um, invitation mm-hmm. at, that you're here in whatever way is needed. Yeah. Like sure during that time, it's like this is the body of Christ is just so amazing. <laughs> you know, it was just so amazing during that time to come alongside us and, and just knowing the Lord. I, I don't know how people do it without Christ. I really don't. I'm having that hope. <laughs> you know, and to that point, if you are listening and you don't currently have, or maybe you've never been a part of kind of that that church family, it's not that far away. You can reach out. And I don't I don't really know of any church family that wouldn't just welcome you with open arms and make you instant family. They'll be there for you. They will pray for you. Most of them have websites, we do links where you can just put a prayer request like I need something. I I'm going through a hard time. And that that body will be there for you, even if you didn't know about it before. We had overwhelming support from our church family and from people we didn't know. And that, that was such a huge, huge blessing that we had a lot of prayer support, a lot of, a lot of support from people. Well, four and a half months after Caleb's death, I gave birth to our daughter, Melody. And I was so, we were so thankful to have a little girl after all the trauma we've been through. And, and we were excited. But it was also a scary time because Melody was born with the same condition that took her brothers. And we didn't know at that point in time what the outcome would be for her. The doctors thought that now that we know that with antibiotics and extra immunization, she probably would be fine. But we knew that up to age five, she was going to be at high risk. And so it was a scary, a scary time. And now at this point, after Caleb's death, you, you, you got some answers. Mm-hmm. And then was that... Was that sort of the key that then sort of shed light on Nathan's death and that the doctors were sort of able to connect all the dots and figure out what had happened and then use that to test your daughter? Kind of how did that, how did you sort of finally figure all of these pieces out? Mm-hmm. Yes, from the autopsy on Caleb, they discovered that he did not have a spleen and they just assumed that's probably what happened with Nathan. He probably did not have a spleen also because of the way they both got blood infections and died in the same day. So they were pretty certain that he must not have had a spleen also, and that probably any future children would need to have a tested to make sure that, see if they had a spleen or not. We were fortunate that apparently it's very uncommon to have a splenia, but most cases we were told have severe heart issues with it, and generally they detect the heart issues and usually die within the first year from the heart issue. But our boys didn't have a heart issue, and we didn't know anything was wrong with them at all until their death. So with Melody, they thought that she would probably be fine. I mean, people live without their spleen. It is more critical when you're born without a spleen because you don't have that 
opportunity to build up their immunities, like someone that later has their spleen removed. So they were able to start antibiotics with her right away. They tested her and found out she didn't have that. She also didn't have the spleen. So the first year, you know, between the doctors and us, it was just a lot of uncertainty. You know, how long? And remember people coming up and congratulating us for the birth of Melody, which we're thrilled, but there was also a fear. I remember, I wouldn't tell people this, but inside I'm thinking, well, thank you, but I don't know how long we get to keep her. That's how I'd feel. You know, obviously I didn't say that with two people's face. And, and she did actually, overall, Melody did well. There was a few scary times with her. Um, I remember one time she had a cold and ran just a slight fever, and I took her in, and her white blood cell count was way high, <laughs> extremely high. And so they brought an ambulance. They said, well, I got an ambulance with her, and I rode with her all the way to Dornbecker again and, and, and stayed with her. They kept her for a while at Dornbecker, and she did fine. But it was scary. It was definitely definitely a scary time. But she, life kind of settled down. She seemed to do, as she got older, got better. You know, life got a lot simpler. And I kind of knew how to juggle her condition along with the doctors, trying to figure out what worked best with her. And, and so between the doctors and us, we kind of learned how to live life with her condition and try to keep life as normal as possible for her. But it, but they felt like, you know, with her, with the medication that she could be on, with immunizations that she probably would be fine. But we really had a strong, a strong desire to have more children. And I know that verse when, when God's talking to Moses kept running through our heads, um, who makes man's mouth, who makes him senior blind, dumb or deaf, as I the Lord. And it, it felt like just God was telling me that I don't, I'm not promising that your kids are going to be healthy or not have any issues, but who's, as I who's writing the story, as I who's creating your children this day. But it appeared like they would do fine as long as we knew we could respond faster and be on antibiotics and immunizations. So we can, we decided to go ahead and expand our family. And I became pregnant with Zachary just shortly after. It was an interesting time because on one hand, I feel like I was extremely, you know, in the word and strong. And then other times like, oh my goodness, what are we doing? (laughs) We're crazy. What are we doing? This is scary. But we're so thankful that God, God blessed us with Zachary. Not too long after Melody's birth, about two years, I guess two years after Melody was born, Zachary was born. And his name means God is remembered. Zachary means God is remembered. Not that he ever forgot, but just, it was just comforting to us that God is remembered. And, and then we, we had seven children. Melody on down, we have seven children and, and Zachary and his following him all have their spleen. So we had several pregnancies in a row where life was normal and things went well with our, several of our children. So currently we have seven children, like I mentioned, three without a spleen and four with a spleen. And they've all been able to go on and live normal lives. We're so very, very grateful to God for that. And we've been blessed with three grandchildren. In fact, our daughter Melody, who I mentioned, she's the mother of three of our grandchildren. And and it did carry on to the next generation. One of her her oldest daughter doesn't also not have her spleen. But she's seven now, will be eight years shortly, and by God's grace, she's doing great. Yeah. She was on extra antibiotics. They have them go off now, but knowing now that they know something is wrong, they can, can look for it and then treat it and, and she's done great. So we felt so very blessed and, and I don't know. Every God has a different story that he writes for everybody, but if you're in the midst of a grief, midst of a trial, your story's not done being written. You don't know what the end of your story is going to look like. And God never promises that in this life. That's so going to have a happy ending. I don't know. You know, only God knows what your, what the story of your life will be like. 
there definitely is a purpose that God has for your situation, and it's ultimately one way or another is going to be used for God's glory. And you have your miracle. The miracle that he spoke to you that was maybe different than the miracle you were initially asking for, but you healed and you carried on. Not only that, your marriage survived. And and not only that, you were able to have more children. And not that any of the seven that you have on earth with you today replace the two that you lost, but what a beautiful gift to have, have this you know, a house full of, of children and now grandchildren and, and to watch that. I so appreciate that you touched on the fact that statistically, couples that lose a child often end up divorced. Those are the statistics. But we know that God is bigger than statistics. And I was hoping that you might just, specifically for the woman listening where she has experienced a loss and there is a great grief and she's and she's looking at this future. How will she and her husband make it? Will their marriage survive? The statistics don't look good. But you're such an example of hope and encouragement. And I'm sure it wasn't that every single day was perfect. But what words of hope and encouragement would you give to that lady listening that God is bigger, he is greater, he can protect your marriage in the midst of this sort of grief. He can redeem you. He can restore hope. Well, statistics don't have to define us. We have a good God, a big God. And I think it comes down to a lot of, like I mentioned earlier, being getting outside support. When you have two people that are just devastated, that they really can barely survive themselves, you can't expect them to be propping each other up. You know, not not initially anyway. You know, they, they need to have outside support. They need to have people coming aside alongside each of them. And I think even just knowing, knowing that you're going to grieve differently and that's okay. And that's that men and women typically do grieve differently. And I think even just having that knowledge helps that women tend to show their emotions more. They tend to cry and pray. And that, and that was hard for Greg at times to have me cry. And that he didn't want to see me cry. Didn't, probably because he didn't want to see me hurting. And then and Greg would go off and be busy with things and and yet it, when the holiday rolled around he was in tears too so it was i think i think a lot of it's just getting the help that you need and not being afraid to ask for help and, and being educated knowing that this is normal i mean it is normal to read differently and not everyone can agree the same absolutely you know it means so much to hear those kinds of words from somebody who gets it and and we talk about that a lot on the podcast that, you know, it's one thing to sort of get advice from somebody, but it's so much more meaningful when that's coming from a, a mentor, somebody who's been through it, who understands it, who's experienced it herself and can can really come along inside and say, I, I understand. Like, I really, I really do understand. I'm so grateful that you are willing to share this story, even I know as many years as it's been since you experienced those losses, it still hurts. There are still tears. There's still emotions there. So I want to thank you for being willing to go back and, and walk through your whole life story and to go back through those memories of where you were standing and what you heard and what you saw and what you felt. It, it takes courage. Quite honestly, it takes courage to do that. And I, I appreciate you doing that. You said at the beginning that you were looking for ways to volunteer and you have really just volunteered your story. 
and spent time sharing that with listeners who needed to hear it. So thank you. And as we close, I was hoping that you'd be willing to pray for the listeners, specifically for the women who have lost a child, who are going through that grief that you understand. Sure. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you promised to be near to the brokenhearted. Father, thank you that you fulfill your promises. And we pray for those who are today walking through grief that are feel like they'll never come out on the other side. I pray, Father, that they will sense your presence in a very real and powerful way. I pray that you'll bring people around them to support and encourage them. I pray, Father, that, that they would dig into your word and that your word would really touch and minister to them in a very real and powerful way. And we know that your word is living and active. And we just trust that you will fulfill your word in them. So, Father, we just pray for those that are grieving today, that you might comfort them. We pray that you might strengthen their marriages. Pray that you might strengthen their walk with you. Help them to have a, Father, just a vision of what's really important to you. Sometimes it's so easy to, to get so distracted by things around us. And we know that during these times of trials and difficulties, the here and now becomes less and less important, but we know that, that you have an eternal purpose in all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Nancy. I really, really appreciate your story. Listeners, I I know this was a particularly emotional story. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by it. And I hope it gives those of you who are grieving some encouragement. And for those of you who are looking for ways to support somebody who's grieving, I hope you are also encouraged. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again, Nancy, for being our speaker tonight. And we hope you come back next week for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast. A ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.